Fusion. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we populate and perish wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll talk with Beyond Zero Emissions and the politics of terminal care. But first up, here's the news with Julianne Popple. So the latest news is that apparently great white sharks are big fans of Akadaka. That's right. And their favourite album, apparently, according to the Herald Sun, is the classic Back in Black. So Matt Wallace from Adventure Bay Charter Company Cruises south of Port Lincoln was experimenting one day with playing music underwater and found that whilst the sharks wouldn't really respond to other types of music, they loved ACDC. Not only did they approach the speakers, but they rubbed their face in it. So there you go, ACDC, the badasses of rock, not on land, but in water also. Thank you, Julianne. Next up, the intrepid Victoria Bond corners one of her professors in the Anaesthetic Bay to talk about end-of-life care. Hi, I'm Mohamed Kadra. I'm Professor of Surgery at Nepean Hospital, along with Michael Cox, and um, I'm a urologist and also an author and a playwright, which is sort of my hobby, but it seems to have uh, expanded into something more than that. So you've just written a recent book, is that correct? That's right, yep. So my first book, as you know, was called Making the Cut, and it was about, perhaps from the doctor's perspective, training in surgery and what it was like in the 80s to train as a surgeon. The next book was called The Patient, which is from the patient's perspective, so it follows the journey of a middle-aged man who wakes up one morning and pees blood and from that point on goes through a health journey through our public hospital system. And was this a, a personal experience, or was this one you extrapolated from your patient load? The, the patient himself is a conglomerate of four patients with bladder cancer and their own journey, but obviously my own experiences and my own experience with cancer about 10 years ago, I had thyroid cancer and went through a similar journey. Um, so I suppose it's, you know, I'm not clever enough to write books that are not somehow autobiographical and drawing on personal experience. My third book emanated from a visit to Nepean Hospital by Kevin Rudd, um, who was then Prime Minister, and he came to tell us about the National Hospital and Health Reform Commission findings. And it struck me that if I'm to make genuine um value statements about health now, I really needed to understand where the health system has come from in Australia. And so I started off by trying to figure out what gave rise to Medicare 
um, because I hadn't worked in a system that didn't have Medicare and the system of health and health funding that existed in Australia before the 1970s was completely different. So I went back to interview a guy called John Diebel, who actually wrote Medicare in the first place and convinced the Prime Minister at that time, Gough Whitlam, to adopt Medicare. Subsequently, there were a lot of changes, and uh, I, I went ahead and interviewed all the other main proponents in the 80s. So people like John Diebel mm-hmm. um, started off with him, but then went on to John Menadieu, who was the uh, Secretary for the Prime Minister. And then Neil Blewett, who's the Health Minister at the time, um, went on to interview people like Bill Hayden, who was uh, the head of the government or the head of the opposition at the time that brought in Medicare. So a lot of these people, and then of course major medical proponents and antagonists. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the 80s we had a huge um, uh, stand-up fight essentially between the medical profession led by an orthopaedic surgeon called Bruce Shepherd and the government about these changes in Medicare. And in between are stories of patients and how these reforms impact on individual patients. So the book is called Terminal Decline, which is a very negative title, but it was really my diagnosis of the health system unless we brought about some real change. And that change is about devolved management, engagement of clinicians, so that as doctors and nurses on the front line, we're able to influence some of the governance decisions that are made. And we need to pay attention to costs. I think uh, too often we think that we can just spend willy-nilly in health, but within the next 20 years, the health budget in New South Wales will be the entire budget of health, of, uh, of New South Wales. That is everything. No money spent on roads or schools or anything else. So in that context, it's really the medical profession that's got to put forward that leadership that says, this is how we should ration health. These are how the ways we should be spending the dollars. And we're still in a situation where something like 60% of people on palliative care still die in hospital we have something like 70% of the health budget is spent on people in the last six months of life, about 40% spent on people in the last month of life. So somehow we've lost focus as a health profession from that focus of alleviating suffering, which is what we signed up for, to a focus of longevity, of quantity of life over quality of life. And it's that that I write about. I've been very fortunate to co-author a play um, which is with uh, an Australian playwright called David Williamson who's probably one of the best known playwrights in Australia and that play is uh, featuring at the Ensemble Theatre in Kirribilli starting on the 7th of July and it's a play about an elderly woman who's in ICU and the decisions that the family have to make in conjunction with the doctors and nurses looking after that patient in terms of what is the quality of life versus the quantity of life. Um, so it's there are parts of the play that are funny, but at the end of the day what I'm hoping is people will walk out of that play and actually have a discussion with their loved ones, with people who care for them, about what type of death they want to have, what 
decisions do they want made when they're in a situation at the end of life? That's right. Um, that reflects my current experience in the ICU at Nepean Hospital, where I, I do see a lot of elderly people come in and, and have their life prolonged at any cost. Um, often because of the families that, that are insisting on, on keeping their grandmother or mother alive. and It's very traumatic for everyone involved. Uh, I think in 2011, it's beholden on us as doctors to say these are the number of treatment options that are available and here is the option of no treatment or here is the option of keeping a loved one comfortable and allowing them to have a good quality of death. And I think that quality of death indicator um, we're just not grappling as a medical profession and that's where the leadership needs to come from. It's that option that's given to patients and if patients are given that option a lot of the times I think depending on how it's given might choose to say you know what I don't want the angiogram and I don't want all of these tubes and drains and whatever um, as long as I can be made to feel comfortable and allow me to farewell my family in a, in a way that I feel. Now I'm not an advocate of euthanasia, I, I, I don't support it, but what I do think is that we need to be, we need to be able to say is this the right thing? We can do this, but should we do it? Um, one of my professors of surgery used to say, a good surgeon knows when to operate, a great surgeon knows when not to operate. And I think that's true in 2011 as it was in 1980. So if, um, if people are interested in purchasing your newest book, where, where can that be found? Victoria, um, uh, it's uh, in all the major bookstores, in Dimmock's and the co-op bookshop, and it can be ordered online as well. It's in um, e-book uh, format as well. Great. And once again, that's Terminal Decline, authored by Professor Mohamed Kadra. Published by Random House. Thank you very much. Victoria, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be with you today. That was Victoria Bond speaking with Professor Mohamed Kadra at Sydney University and Nepean Hospital, author of Terminal Decline and co-author of At Any Cost on the subject of terminal care. Now, terminal care leads very slippery into euthanasia and suicide and all of the whole politics of ending your life or what happens at the end of your life and whether you should have a choice or not. And he was talking there about people possibly having the choice of no treatment. Now, I find this really interesting because there's a whole movement internationally, a political movement for euthanasia, for people to choose to die if they're in some form of suffering. And there's a, it's evidenced in do not resuscitate cards that some people will carry. And there's an assumption that the only people who would be against this are people who have a religious objection, and I don't think that's right. I think there's a, a danger that you could be pressured into choosing no treatment, into choosing to die, because it's costing the state, it's costing your family, your family needs to move on, um, it might be the nobler thing to do. I think it should be a real choice. So you should be allowed to choose to stay alive at any cost, as much as the resources are available to you. I think it should be an option you can choose as well. So I like the idea that you can make a genuine choice. So it's a little controversial because people get very emotional on either side of this issue. And like all such issues, it's really 
a personal thing and I don't think anybody's going to be swayed, but I think it's very interesting to talk about. Personally, I wouldn't carry a Do Not Resuscitate card. I want to carry a Resuscitate at All Cost card because I want to live. I think quantity is as important as quality, perhaps more in my case, but it's a personal choice. Do you value a limit to suffering or more life? So what do you guys think? Well, I think that the system that we currently have is everyone is carrying a metaphorical resuscitate card. I think it's it's a system in which you have to opt out to have a do not resuscitate. And so I think it is a valid discussion to have, as Professor Kadra was saying, to go to your family and establish a living will and say, if you do not want to be resuscitated, do not resuscitate me. Working in my experience in emergency rooms and in hospitals is if there's any doubt, we resuscitate. And that can be quite difficult because there's a difference between withholding treatment and euthanasia. It's interesting that you bring up this issue between, um, I guess, uh, maybe a trade-off between euthanasia and the right to have resuscitation and continue um, to have life support. Because um, I have a bit of a personal experience in this. My grandfather last year passed away. He was in an intensive care unit and he had pneumonia. And on the final evening of his life, the hospital had called his family in, but none of them, not everyone had arrived yet. So uh, at some point when they'd taken him off the intubator, I think it's called, um, they'd put him on some other apparatus, which was distressing him somewhat. And, uh, and they, at some point he kept pulling this apparatus off because it was freaking him out. And the medical staff were saying to him, and they were being a bit pressuring and saying, oh, are you refusing treatment? And they'd say this over and over and over again. And he'd shake his head. And they kept asking him, and he was obviously not refusing treatment, but there was some element of pressure there because obviously he was being a bit difficult for them. So mm. I understand from their perspective, but I think if they'd actually you know, spent more time talking with the family, they would have established, and him, that really he wanted to make sure all his family were there first. I think that's why he was distressed. But also he didn't want this thing on him because it, they'd established it wasn't really helping. So eventually, when all the family was there, they got to take it off and put something much more comfortable for him and give him required pain relief. And it was sort of discreetly established that, you know, we wanted... He he only asked for Panadol, but um, they discreetly gave him something stronger as well. So that eased the, the passing. Hmm. So it's one of those things that's really important that the communication has to be clear and it has to be obviously what well, has to be a real choice and it's a person it's really a personal thing what your values are i was disturbed when i gave a, a speech about this a lot of people in the room who were very pro euthanasia and pro the right to choose to die and they they valued it very highly and were quite angry that they thought i was going to take it away from them because i didn't want it for myself and in the end their argument was that i should i should choose to die even if i didn't want to because I was using up resources that someone else might use, someone else might be able to make better use of, and that really I was being selfish, and in fact, I should die and they should be allowed to kill me. And really, some people are that... It's one of those dangerous things, and there are a lot of people with disabilities who have trouble communicating their, their needs, because some people are so firm in their beliefs that if they lost the use of their legs or they lost this or if they suffered that, then they wouldn't want to live, and they have trouble understanding that other people feel differently. 
I think there's a question of definitions that needs to be established. I think do not resuscitate is quite different from euthanasia. Euthanasia is the decision to die. Do not resuscitate is the decision to not have treatment which will result in death. So people who choose do not resuscitate and die wouldn't have survived. People who choose euthanasia can go on living, and it's 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 pretty much suicide. Um, and I do think that this is a very emotional topic. Um, currently, our society, I think, gives a considerable amount of choice in do not resuscitate and uh, choosing to be resuscitated. And euthanasia, I think, is a life care discussion that we were having with Professor Mohammed Kadra. But it's easy to confuse those. Well, yeah. they're, they're close. They're very close. And I guess in the case of my grandfather, it was clearly a case where he was going to die. Further medical assistance wasn't going to help, so the best thing they could do was to make it as comfortable and dignified as possible, which is very different to an active decision to die. The good thing is he was ready to go, and he was mentally prepared to go, but he didn't have the choice, really. It was going to happen anyway. Yes, it's a very serious issue and a very interesting one that we could just discuss endlessly. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, Diffusion at 2SCR.com, broadcast in Sydney on 2SCR and brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and available over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit, volunteer-run organisation whose core goal is to develop blueprints for the implementation of climate change solutions to reduce emissions. In partnership with the University of Melbourne Energy Research Institute, Beyond Zero Emissions are undertaking the Zero Carbon Australia 2020 project, which is putting together fully costed transition plans for getting Australia to zero emissions in 10 years using commercially available technology. Mark West spoke to Petra Liverani about Beyond Zero Emissions. Hi, I'm Petra Liverani. I'm a volunteer with Beyond Zero Emissions, which is a group that has a plan to make Australia completely zero carbon. They've just produced a plan for stationary energy, otherwise known as electricity, um, and that um, that would take 10 years. Uh, the plan would take 10 years to implement, and it would be 60% solar and 40% wind. Those technologies were chosen because they're um, commercially available off the shelf. Spain has just um, commissioned a plant that we would be basing our plants on, a, a solar, a concentrated solar thermal plant. Um, concentrated solar thermal means that you can produce base load power. I mean, a, a big argument against renewables is that they can't produce base load power, but with concentrated solar thermal, you can store heat from the sun in, in molten salt, which will uh, generate power, for, can, can generate power for say, 17 hours continuously. So it means that you can you know, produce continuous energy. Yeah, so the plan would be about 10 solar regions consisting of each of 19 plants together and also about 22 wind farms. And wind is you know, used extensively in uh, Europe. China is building massive wind farms. You know, so it's all you know, 
doable. It's all done. It's all producing lots of energy, and we and Australia has great, fantastic solar and wind resources and plenty of land to place them in, so that they're not annoying people and so on. Mm -hmm. And the solar is different to what goes the panels on your roof, isn't it? This is uh, it reflects the sun into the salt. Is that the way it's stored? I mean, it doesn't reflect it directly into the salt. It reflects it into a receiving panel at the top of a tower. It goes into a, a massive salt storage tank, which is insulated, so it stores the heat very well. And are you getting any uh, traction with the program? Is uh, the political parties taking notice and, in, and trying, going to implement the plan? Sure. I mean, politicians, individual politicians from all, of all stripes, support the plan. I mean, Malcolm Turnbull. In, he was there at, when we launched the plan in Sydney, Bob Carr, I mean Greens politicians. It's a no-brainer really and, and so we, what, I, what we haven't heard is, well, no, you cannot do it. Like, you know, it cannot be done because it's been all thoroughly researched. It's based on what's already happening. So there's, there's no real argument against it and when you compare it, the cost of it, it's $370 billion over 10 years, $37 billion a year. Um, $37 billion a year is what we spend on insurance. Two-thirds of that amount is what we spend on gambling. So it's doable and if we don't do it, it's going to cost us far more. I guess that's the thing, people don't always think of the the longer term cost of, of inaction I guess and I guess uh, I guess the more we take up wind and solar that it will get more efficient and the cost will come down there as well exactly exactly that I mean that's how it's been costed I mean it's been costed on the directory of because renewables are going down and fossil fuels are going up so and yeah the more that it's implemented the cost goes down yeah okay and, uh, and a question from left field I'm always interested in asking people uh, especially in, in your organization and in your position why do you think people don't believe the science of climate change or don't think we need to do anything about it? That's a, that's a really interesting question and I'm actually going to, I'm going to a talk on it myself in a couple of weeks because I mean I, um, I, don't, I don't really understand the psychology of it. I, I, I know that one person said that there are some people who just resist change. They just resist change and they don't, they don't like change. Um, although the change will happen regardless. So I don't know because, you know, obviously there are people with vested interests, fossil fuel companies, they have vested interests and they, they resist it. But why the average person resists it who doesn't have a vested interest, I really don't understand it. Yeah, I, as a practising scientist, I, I never got my letter about the conspiracy and I don't get paid that well. So, uh, <laughs> but, um, so uh, uh, if we want to find out more about Beyond Zero Emissions, uh, where should we go to look stuff up? The website is beyondzeroemissions.org and you can, you know, um, subscribe to our mailing list. You can become a member and, uh, you know, there's various... We've produced the stationary energy plan, but there's also the buildings plan, the land use plan, the transport plan, the substitute for coal revenue plan. And so if anyone's interested, they can join one of those research groups to, to develop those other plans that are still being, you know, are still being worked on. You can become a baseload supporter because we need funding. We don't get funded by the government. We're a non-profit organisation and we, and we get funding from private donors. So um, a baseload supporter is someone who just gives a monthly donation. So that's how you can get involved. The website beyondzeroemissions.org. Just one, one question I've got in my head. So that in 10 years, if, if your plan were implemented, does that mean you're going to have built all these plants or is it just 10 years of convincing people to build the, the solar plants and wind plants? What's the, what's the idea? 
Um, well, no, the idea is not to build them in 10 years' time because that's too late. We need to start building them straight away. I mean, you know, we're way over time as it is. So the idea is to build them within a 10-year a time frame. The plants are, are all in regional areas and they will be greatly boost the economies of those areas. And so it's regional development, basically. So there's an economic benefit, which is good because a lot of people that might deny the science I don't know, seem to fall on the right wing of uh, politics. Exactly. It's, you know, just put climate science completely out of the picture and there's an economic benefit because it's going to cost us more. You know, there's also the fossil fuel running out aspect. You know, it's not just the climate science thing. It's the fossil fuels are going to run out and or they, and they're going to become much more expensive. So there's an economic benefit, yes. That's interesting. Actually, it, it seems to be lost in this debate that we're actually going to run out of fossil fuels one day. I mean, we've got plenty of coal, but we're going to run out of oil at some point soon. And oil will become very, very expensive. That was Mark West chatting to Petra Liverani about the science-based plans of Beyond Zero Emissions. Stop there. Perfect. I'll put Mark in the credits. I'm on. Mm-hmm. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions or wild, passionate praise, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2scr.com. That's diffusion at 2scr.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on the website www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program was Mark West, Julianne Popple, and Diffusion has been produced by Victoria Bond in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney. Diffusion's broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week in Diffusion Science Radio. We have the mountains and the forests and the rivers and the valleys and the natural resources they contain. We have the natural resources, but the theme of my discourse is just how long will those resources all remain? If we study conservation and practice conservation, there's no doubt that it will keep our nation strong. It's my earnest observation that the anti-population join the chorus of the conservation song. With scientific crop rotation and the proper irrigation, we can stop our soil from washing down the drain. We can increase reforestation and reduce the conflagrations that are burning up the trees that do...